Jess and Mom, and I apologize for my... We're creatures of habit here, and that's out of the ordinary, and that's why. Let's think about those words from John that I just read a moment ago. And to do that, I want to start with an ordinary kind of scene, an ordinary kind of relationship scene that plays itself out all the time in, in households and in relationships. A mother and her son, her adult son, have a difficult relationship. There's tension there, and there has been for a while. Um, the mom feels that the, the son disapproves of her somehow. Um, she doesn't talk, he doesn't talk to her very often, as often as she feels that he should. When he does talk to her, the sentences are short. And when they're together, the body language, the look in his eyes, it's like something is bothering him, and he doesn't know what. As for the son... He feels as though his whole life he has put up with his mother's disapproval. He feels like everything he's ever chosen in his life, his mom has somehow raised her eyebrows and asked questions. The job he chose, the place he chose to go to school, the spouse he chose. He feels like there's always a little edge of judgment, that she can't just offer him encouragement. That encouragement always has to have a teaspoon of questioning. And so there's tension. And neither of them want this. Right? They don't want this to be this way between them. They want it to be free and easy and loving and open. Christmas vacation comes. Son comes to town. He's going to spend two days with mom. And both of them, as they go into this, fully intend for this to be a healing time. They hope they come out of these two days that things will be better. And so somewhere in the first day they're talking together. And it's just small talk, it's just polite. And the mom decides to risk something. She knows that um, her son, who's not usually particularly handy, has put in two French doors in the dining room. And so she says to him, Honey, I heard you put those doors in. Really great. I think it's so great that you did that. And he says, Thanks. Sincerely, but a little bit awkwardly. And she sees his awkwardness, and so she gets a little nervous, and she does what she always does when she's nervous. She starts to talk more. And she goes, I just think it's so great when people are able to be handy. Your father, for instance, he is incredible. He can fix anything. I don't know what we would have done without him. He did our whole basement, and you remember how much fun we, you kids used to have down in that basement? It's so good when someone's handy. Silence. No more smiles. The sun is clouding over. He feels a whiff of judgment. In his mind, he thinks that this is a sermon dressed up as encouragement. It's his mom's passive way of saying, why can't you be more like your dad? What he says with his mouth is, well, I guess we can't all be as awesome as dad. That's not what I meant, she says. I was trying to be nice. Why do you have to be so sensitive? Whatever, he says. And he walks into another room. The exchange is over in less than a minute, but that one minute is enough to bring a curtain down between them for the rest of the weekend and put this pit in their stomach that they carry around for the rest of Christmas. For the rest of their time together, they can both feel this tension. 
There is something so familiar about that exchange I've just described, right? I mean, all of us have had exchanges like this. Not exactly like this, but all of us have been through exchanges where we have a person in our life that there's a little tension with, and we, we want it to work. We want to approach this person. We want to get close to this person. And so we try with good intentions on both sides, and somehow, instead of reconciliation, we crash into each other. Our old resentments and the sharp edges that we all have, instead of a reconciliation, there's a crash. What word do we have to describe this failure to disconnect and, and that feeling of a curtain, that feeling of a pit in our stomach that comes when we crash into each other like that? What's the word that best describes what that mother and that son carried around with them for the rest of the Christmas weekend? I think the word is loneliness. That feeling is loneliness. When we, we have someone that we love, that we want to connect with, and we can't, that is a profoundly lonely feeling. I want to talk about loneliness this Christmas. It sounds a little depressing, maybe. Not cheerful Christmas morning stuff. But I blame Scripture. I blame John. Because those words that I just read, to me, remind me of loneliness and remind me specifically of exactly the kind of failure to connect that I just described at the beginning of this sermon. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus was in the world, and even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, and his own people did not receive him. That is a lonely sentence. I read that sentence, and it reminds me that when Christ came to this world at Bethlehem, he came to share our loneliness, to take on our loneliness, and it even reminds me, and when you look at the whole arc of Scripture, when we look at that sentence, we can even talk about the loneliness of God. That God shares our loneliness in Christ. The loneliness of God. Now, maybe you think, the loneliness of God? Peter, have you lost your theological marbles? How can God be lonely? He lives in heaven. He lives in absolute perfection. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no tears and no misery in heaven. How can we talk about the loneliness of God? Well, we can talk about it because the Scripture describes it. The Scripture describes something like the loneliness of God. Let me lay it out for you. Do you remember Genesis 2? And how the intimacy of God and Adam and Eve was described, right? God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He just walked right with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they were naked and they knew no shame. That's not sexual. That just means that their hearts were wide open to God and his heart was wide open to them and they walked together. Then Adam and Eve sin. And the curtain comes down. And the pit grows in their stomach. And what do they do? They put on these clothes and they run and they hide. Separate themselves from God, which leads to this amazing scene where God comes and he has to look for them. And he cries out in the garden to Adam, where are you? God, looking for his creation, looking for his creatures, reaching out to them. That question, where are you? There is pathos in that question. There is a longing for the people who have left him. You hear that same kind of longing, that same sort of feeling all through the prophets, right? 
In the prophets, God's longing is for his people. God starts a special relationship with his family, with the people of Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. We'll be a family. It'll be great. We'll be so close. There'll be so much love. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that, that God's children keep turning away. They keep breaking covenant. And God's initial reaction to that is, of course, anger, right? That makes him furious when Israel rebels and turns away. Hosea 11, a great example. He's furious with Israel. And he says, Israel is my wayward son. I'm going to punish him. A sword will flash in their cities and put an end to all their plans. Right? That, that, that sense of Israel running away makes God angry. But then the rest of Hosea 11, that anger tips over to something else, which is really at the center of this. Love. He says, it was me who taught Israel to walk. I was the one who trained my son. I taught him to walk. I put my cheek against his, it says in Hosea 11. I've known him since the day he was a boy. All my compassion is aroused. How can I give him up? I will bring him home, says the Lord. He expresses this deep desire for his child, and that deep desire is something like loneliness. Or listen to these words in Jeremiah 31, verse 20. And again, you can hear that God is expressing a deep desire for his son. Is not Israel my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. My heart yearns for him. What is that yearning if not something like loneliness? Or finally, think of one more picture, the parable of the prodigal son. In that parable, how does Jesus portray the father? Standing at the gate of his property, looking out into the distance, watching for his boy, watching for his child, waiting for him to come home. What is that if not the twinge of something like loneliness? The loneliness of God. What do you do when you're lonely and you miss someone? What do you do when there's someone you love who's pushing you away and you want to reunite with them? Well, you go to them, right? How do you go to them? You don't go to them in strength. You go to them in vulnerability if you're wise. You go to them and say, I hate that it, things are tense between us. I hate that this relationship isn't working. What do I need to do? Please, can we make this right between us? That's the way you restore a broken relationship. You do it, you lead with your vulnerability. And that is just how God approaches us at Bethlehem at Christmas. Even though his relationship with us is totally different than the relationship with the mother and the son I described at the beginning of the sermon. In that relationship, they were sort of equally at fault. Even though God is the one who's completely at right in this broken relationship, he's the one who comes to us in vulnerability. He makes the vulnerable approach. Jesus empties himself of his power, empties himself of his glory, and becomes a child. He strips off the robes of heaven and lets a teenage girl wrap him in bands of cloth and lay him in a manger. He becomes impossibly small and weak. And he does it because he cannot stand this gap between 
him and us. He does it because he loves you. This coming to earth has never just been about conquering the powers of evil. It's never just been a big cosmic thing about renewal. It's always been personal. It's always been love. If this was just about God vindicating himself, he would have come in majesty. But it's not. It's about you. It's about you. And so he approaches you in weakness and vulnerability to express an unending love for you. Not just love in general, for you. And then how do we respond to that movement of vulnerability? Jesus turns his face to us, what do we do? We spit in it and hit it. Jesus extends his hand, we take his hand, and we put a nail through it. Jesus makes himself frail and vulnerable for our sake. We take advantage of that vulnerability and we crucify him. He came to that which was his own, and his own people did not receive him. If something like that happened in a human relationship, if something like that happened to you, what would happen to that relationship? You approached them in vulnerability, and they slapped you in the face and laughed at you. What would happen to that relationship? It would end. You'd be done with them. But that's not Jesus. Even when we slapped him and put him on a cross, he keeps expressing his desire and his love and his forgiveness for us. How can this be? What kind of love is this? This love is either complete foolishness or it is good news of great joy which shall be for all people. The love that lays itself in the manger at Bethlehem is either complete foolishness, either it's the love of a chump or it is love that will make all things new and will absolutely transform your heart. Verse 10 and 11 give this picture of melancholy and loneliness and rejection that we give to God. Verses 12 and 13 turn things around. John says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does that tell us? It tells us that that love that came to us in vulnerability at Bethlehem is still moving towards you. It still wants to have a relationship with you. That Jesus is still standing at the door, opening it up, letting the light of his house pour out, and he is inviting you in. He's saying, come on in. Come into the circle of my love. Come to my table. Join my community of love. I love you. There's a seat for you here. I want you to be part of my family and the love we have together. If I were you, I would accept his invitation. Are you lonely this Christmas? Maybe circumstances have left you with fewer people around you this Christmas than you would ordinarily expect and you wish it were different. Maybe you're missing someone at your table this year who was there last year and you feel that person's absence keenly. Maybe you've spent your whole life chasing success and the accolades of other people and you've achieved it. And now you've got a lot of money, but not very many friends. Whatever it is, take your lonely heart to Jesus and hear the good news of great joy that this day brings.
and realize that this child has come down to earth, not simply to transform everything, but because he wants a relationship with you. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about that baptismal prayer. It's an old baptismal reformed uh, prayer. I think it's like four or five hundred years old. Christy sometimes uses it. I never do. Maybe I should. She sometimes says it at baptism. It's something that you say right before the water goes on the baby's head. And this is what it says. And listen to how personal this is. Child for you, for you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he suffered the darkness of Calvary and said it is finished. For you, he triumphed over death and rose to newness of life. For you, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he did all this before you knew anything about it. And so the word of scripture is fulfilled. He loves because we first loved us. Merry Christmas, everyone. And praise God for the great love that has moved towards us in vulnerability at this season. Amen. We are, um, oh wait, I'm going to say a prayer. And then after the prayer, we're going to sing not the hymn printed in your bulletin. This is another little change. Um, because we love to sing, O Come All Ye Faithful, at the end of the 11 p.m., and we didn't get to do that last night, we're going to finish with O Come All Ye Faithful, which is number 76 in Lift Up Your Hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way you moved towards us at Christmas, Lord, that you emptied yourself of your glory and that you came so close that we could see your face and touch you and to know that your love was something deep and personal for us. Lord, we know that we still sometimes turn our face away from you, distracted by many things, worried about many things. Thank you, Lord, that you do not give up, that you pursue us and that you invite us in. Lord, let your love fill us and let your joy surround us on this Christmas day. Amen.